2 Samuel chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all round from the millow inwards. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David and you can read their names for yourselves. (laughs) When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go round to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Giza. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks very much, Debbie. I think uh, the children are about to leave and... There are lessons in store for them. Uh, I'm not sure whether they get uh, more chocolates. 
but uh, certainly there'll be treats from the Bible. Now, as we come into 2 Samuel chapter 5, that's the part of the Bible we're going to be studying tonight. Last week it was 2 Samuel chapter 4, and next week it'll be 2 Samuel chapter 6. That's how it's done over here. But as we come into 2 Samuel 5, let me ask you a simple question. Does it make you feel good when other people agree with you? Most people would say yes to that. And most politicians trade on that desire to be working with the crowd. So when they've got a disagreement between political parties, they don't say, we think they're wrong for these three very good reasons. They say, we think they're wrong because the great British public won't buy what they're offering. They'll all be on our side. Come over here. It's where the majority is. So, when it comes to working out whether you're going to stay in Europe or not, I wonder whether lots of people are going to be influenced if there's one big group of people that say one thing, and if, say, all the political parties say this should happen or that should happen, it's going to be hard for us, isn't it, to think, well, we don't want to be left on the outside. We want to be in the mainstream. Generally, people work like that. We follow the crowd, which makes it really hard when it comes to thinking about Jesus because not everybody is on his side. And therefore, if we're crowd pleasers, well, there's going to be a big divide on what people think about how much honour we should give him, whether we should treat him as God's king and therefore our personal leader. Because he is. And that bit of the Bible we've just read is really helpful for us. Because David is God's king. He's anointed his Messiah, if you like, in the Old Testament. Which is helping us to understand what it'd be like with Jesus, who is God's king, his Messiah, in the New Testament. So one is getting us ready to meet the other. David and the nation of Israel is a small version of God's kingdom on earth at that time. The larger version would come when Jesus arrived, and the full and final version is when he comes back. But here is the kingdom of God, small scale, model form, at the time of King David. And as you look at King David and his kingdom, you see it was both accepted and it was rejected. On the outside and on the inside. And we'll take the ones who rejected him first and the ones who rejected him in that bit of the Bible were called Jebusites and they were called Philistines. Let's look at each of those in turn. The Jebusites were the people who thought that they could resist the kingdom of God because they could and they'd get away with it. And you've got to remember that God had told his people at that time that that whole country was going to belong to them, every bit of it. Now, we might say God shouldn't go around saying things like that, promising 
a whole country to his people when there are other people living there at the time. But what you've got to remember is that they were told to possess the land as part of God's judgment on the way people were living who occupied the land at that time. These Jebusites are not nice people. But at the same time, God's people aren't all that great either. Because the fact that the Jebusites were still there tells you that they hadn't actually obeyed God in possessing the whole land. But now, David, God's king, is going to complete their obedience on their behalf and take over their part of the country as well. And if you look at these Jebusites closely, you can see just how cocky they are in verse 6. Hear what they're saying? You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. You see how confident they are? They say, we don't need to get the army out of the barracks. All we just need to do is to get the lame and the blind out of the hospitals. They'll be enough to see you off. Now, I take it that they're confident because in the past, they've been able to see off any previous attempt to evict them from their bit of the country. And they think it'll just happen again. But they haven't met God's king before. And when the king of God comes, against this resistance. We're not quite sure how it happens. It seems like in verse 8 that he gets control over their uh, water supply. But all we know from verse 7 is it doesn't take long and he uh, wins. So in verse 7 it says um, uh, that uh, nevertheless David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. <clears throat> Whoops, I think I might just have gone and uh, spoiled your Christmas for you. Because uh, at Christmas time, you sing that carol, don't you? Once in royal David's city, and everybody is singing about Bethlehem, where there was a lowly cattle shed. Yeah? Well, the royal city was never Bethlehem, it was Jerusalem. That was David's city, that was his royal city. Yeah, the kings were born in Bethlehem, that's true, but the royal city was Jerusalem. That's what. Uh, we're going to see when David takes a stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. <clears throat> and incidentally, I know from verse 8, it seems like uh, David seems to hate lame and blind people, uh, which might put you off him a bit, but let, don't let it, because he's not literally hating lame and blind people, if you just turn on a couple of pages, chapter 9, you see that he's really, really kind to a very lame bloke called Mephibosheth, who he eats with all the time. So, now he's not got anything against disability. No, the lame and blind in this case are David's mocking nickname of all these Jebusites who thought they could stop him. And so he says, no, they're not going to be part of uh, Jerusalem anymore. They're not going to come to the temple None of these Jebusites who opposed me will uh, be around again. So, the main point. 
is to realize it's really hopeless to think that we can resist God's king just because in the past we might have had some success doing that and got away with it, but when God's king comes, it just doesn't work. And I wonder if actually that might be just a little bit of a uh, caution because the trap that God's people can fall into, people who go to church for example, the trap that we can fall into is to say, well actually we are within the kingdom of God, we are within the boundaries of Israel if you like in that sense, we are part of God's church, but we don't want to live under the rule of God's king. And when that happens we are a lame and blind Jebusite to think like that. And in the end, the place of opposition becomes a place of rule. That opposition is completely destroyed. But the place of rule becomes a wonderful place of blessing because you can see how David does his extension work. He builds the city greater and more magnificent, fills it with his glory. And what that Jerusalem is there in the Bible to show us is a flash-forward view of the New Jerusalem, which is the Bible's word for heaven. How the king turns that place of rule into a place of blessing and extends it and enhances it and makes it the city of God's king, Jesus, in the future. So, that's one group, the Jebusites. They opposed God because they thought they could and they get away with it and didn't. The other group that opposed David in the story are the people who thought that they should oppose him. They are the Philistines. They were the traditional enemies of God's people and they had dominated God's people and they didn't want a strong king leading a prosperous and a favored nation. They didn't want that. And so the Philistines are the outsiders, just like the Jebusites were the insiders, the Philistines were the outsiders who didn't want God's king to be king. Seems like it's David becoming the king in verse 17 that provoked their attack. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, all Philistines went up to search for David. And so the fight begins. And there's certainly a heck of a lot of them. If you look at verse 18, there they are spreading all over this huge valley of Rephaim and filling it. Masses, masses. But it's still an easy defeat in verse 20. And if you look at verse 20 closely, you see how actually anything against God's King David is actually against God himself. It is the Lord who has broken through my enemies before me, he says in verse 20. It's God that uh, brings about uh, victory for him. So you'd think then, wouldn't you, that the smart move is to stop opposing this king and to change sides. At least not to attack God's people anymore. But not these rejectors. Oh, no. That's not what they do. They come again. They come and once again they're big in verse 20. Once again they spread out in this valley of Rephaim 
and there's enough of them to do that all over again. Now you might think, well, so what? Why are we studying ancient Israel history in Beckentry in the 21st century? Simply because in the Bible, history shows us the present and the future. So the Philistines, yeah, they've changed their name, but the force of opposition that have come against the gospel, communism, Islam, um, atheism in our country, uh, they're all different names for Philistine forces that fill up the valley with people who don't want God's king to be king. You know, one of the kindest words the Bible has in its dictionary is the word repent, which is don't do that anymore, change sides. And the trouble when we don't repent <coughs> is we do the opposite. We don't repent, we repeat. So the Philistines are back and they're trying it all on again. Only to repeat rather than to repent is to be a Philistine and experience massive loss. You can see in verse 20, the defeat is a local defeat. It's only there in the Valley of Fame, and it says David defeated them there. That's a local battle, local victory. But when you look at verse 25, that final battle is decisive. Now David is taking the victory all the way to the Philistine cities, and it says, David did the law commanded and struck down Philistines from Geba to Geza. If that's how you pronounce it. I'm not a Philistine, I wouldn't know. But that's how far back they've gone. No more around. This is the end of them. You won't hear of Philistines attacking again. They've been center stage attacking God's people all the way through 1 Samuel. And then God promised in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, that he will have a king that would finally defeat the Philistines. And this is it. It's happened in 2 Samuel 5. And the job's done. And as I said in the Bible, the history of the Old Testament is there to show us the present and the future. This defeat here, with the enemy pushed back right away out of uh, uh, away from God's people, that defeat, that total defeat, is there to show us how the enemy assault will finally end when God's king comes and uh, pushes back in his kingdom. So there you are. You've got the Jebusites, the Philistines, the inside opposition, the outside opposition. People reject God's king. What about those who accept God's king? Well, again, you've got two groups, if you noticed. Inside, outside. Inside, in verses uh, 1, you've got uh, the elders who want David to be their king. Actually, for lots of reasons. In verse 1, if you look, it's because he is one of them. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. 
Verse 2 is because he has helped them to win battles in the past. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel and won our battles as you did. But the most important thing, they want him to be king because they believed what was promised. The end of verse 2, they know what God has promised them, you shall be king. And those are all the reasons really why we'd want to be seeking Jesus to be our king. He is, yes, he's God, but he's bone of our bone. He's one of us. We can trust him. He's on our side. And on the cross, like David went out and came in and won battles, Jesus is the one who defeated your ultimate enemy, which is death. So the Christian believer will never die. It was a guy in Sri Lanka's birthday today, and uh, I sent him uh, a text. You're getting old, but he won't die. <laughs> that's because that's what uh, the victory is all about. And mainly, wonderfully, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God's future king that will run his world. And those words in verse 2, if you look at the end of verse 2, it says how the elders said, you should be shepherd of my people Israel. But that's exactly what they said about Jesus when he was born. Matthew chapter 2, you might remember this if you were around the church at Christmas time, they probably read it. It said, and you Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leads of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, just like it was said David would do in verse 2. And it's a wonderful thing when they want Jesus to be king, when they want, sorry, when David to be king in verse 2, in verse 3, that he makes a covenant with them that he would be their king. Wonderful thing when the covenant, when, when God is king, covenants to be your king. They're the insiders. They wanted this person to be king because they believed what was promised about his future. The other reason they wanted him to be, be, be king, and I'm talking about the outsiders now, the king of Tyre, those are the people who believe it would profit them to have this king as their king. And he's happy, isn't he, the king of Tyre, to honour uh, David as king in verse 11. Doesn't say exactly why, but he had good reasons, because, I mean, the Philistines wouldn't have been his friends, and certainly there were brilliant trade routes in Israel that David was running at that time. But whatever his motives, this is the first glimpse in the Bible that God's king is going to be recognized as such outside his own people. These are the outsiders that are beginning to see there's something brilliant going on here. And this is the beginning of Israel being a blessing to the nations. If you know what God told Abraham right at the very first book of the Bible, your people would be a blessing to others. Well, here it is happening. And uh, uh, the king of 
uh, in the Old Testament as being a blessing to the nations around him. And certainly the king of Tyre sees it as a good thing that this man, this king, is king. You can see the value that he placed on this man being king just by looking at the materials and the workmen that he sent to build him a palace. You can see how he rated him and valued him because he knew it would profit him to have him there. And I think that's probably true today as well on our estate. I think generally uh, there are people who may not be uh, Christians yet out there who nonetheless know instinctively it's actually quite a good thing to have Christians around. Just like the king of Tyre would have been very happy to have David as a neighbour, so I think a lot of people would be very happy to have Christians as their neighbours. With deeper, more concerned, serving friendships in the way that they operate. They sense kindness. And they know it's attractive. They may not have crossed the line themselves, but they they instinctively know it'll profit them to be with these people because somehow, in some way, they might be very ordinary, they might be all geriatrics and old like Bill, but um, nonetheless, they sense God's favour is on his people. And certainly David sees that in verse 11, if you have a look, because he sees that um, uh, the day... Uh, uh, they, they sent all these people to build him a house. And David, in verse 12, I meant to say, knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom, but for the sake of his people. Here is a God who only raised up his king in order to favor his own people. That was true of David. It's true of Jesus. When Jesus started his work, God, you could say, exhorted him because he enabled Jesus to do lots of miracles for the sake of his people. Exhorted him for the sake of his people. At the end of his life, uh, Jesus has a resurrection. Why? To make you feel better? No, because the resurrection of God's people means so much to God. It is astonishing that there is a God like this. And that actually when he resurrected Jesus from the dead, he had his eye on you. It's what he wants for you. He exhorts his king for the sake of his people. So, no wonder he is to be a king that is accepted, believing the promise of this king and his future, and believing what profit comes. So three quick things to finish about treating uh, Jesus as king. First, if you aren't a Christian yet, and you might be listening to this talk on our website, don't follow the crowd. Follow the king. I know the elders of Israel were a small group of people, not that many, but they had all the right reasons. Uh, they uh, say, here is a God you can trust. He is just like you. Here is a God who will share his victory over death with you. 
Here is a God who will be king over his world. Whatever resistance people might put up and think they get away with it. Friends, there will be no end of people inside and outside the church who will reject God's king. And there's no end to the number of them. They'll fill valley fools if you want to count. But go with these small group of elders and trust that this king is all that God promised he will be. And do the verse 3 thing, which is to make him your king and ask him tonight to make a covenant with you to be your king from now on. Talk to him in your own words in a minute when we have a bit of quiet. Second, if you're part of a church seat, maybe in this church or you've been to other churches, uh, be aware of the Jebusite trap, which is to live within the boundaries of God's kingdom, if you like, the boundaries of the church, but to resist his rule. We can do that in lots of different ways. We can do that in morality, uh, in the way that... uh, Uh, we handle relationships with the opposite sex we can stay in the kingdom and forget the king Uh, we can do it with our generosity be unlike him in our giving we can be like him in our relationships be unlike him in, in the way we won't forgive other people or love them different ways we can claim to live in the boundary but not Uh, be like the king and resist him instead. Is it time for us to turn that area of opposition, whatever it is, into an area of rule so it can be an area of blessing where God can enlarge life and bring uh, his blessing to it? Don't be lame and blind. In other words, don't be short-sighted when it comes to not treating this king as your king. And thirdly, genuine believers. Don't lose heart when you face opposition. Don't fear the crowd, I should say. Typo. Don't fear the crowd. Long for the king. I know we keep saying this, don't we? Uh, It's old encouragement. But the Bible tells us that this king is resisted again and again and again just in case we ever have a moment when we think that Christianity will not be opposed. It always will be. There's always something new. Uh, There's been a new... (coughs) uh, 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 poll taken a YouGov poll uh, commissioned by a person who is, I think, very involved in the church to claim that uh, young people uh, in the Church of England are all pro-gay marriage. Now, when you look uh, at uh, the uh, uh, results and the findings that comes, It's actually not saying that. But yesterday, last night, uh, Twitter feed and everything else was buzzing 
with these latest findings. We had uh, a couple uh, round to our house for dinner. Uh, Alan Craig is, is a fairly prominent uh, Christian guy, and Radio 5 phoned him when he was in our house uh, and had a, a, a live interview with him about this YouGov poll that's just been published. It's big out there at the moment. And it is just another way of saying, but there you are, there's someone within the kingdom who is actually trying to resist the king. Um, and Adam wonderfully answered that. But then if you didn't listen to Radio 5, you wouldn't have known that, but then you wouldn't have known the fuss either, so you're probably all right. But the difficulty is this, that there are unending valley fools of people who will try and resist this king. And we therefore always need to remember the central lesson of 2 Kings 5. Yes, there are going to be people like that. Don't be surprised when they come. There will be new people filling up the valley tomorrow. There will be local victories. So, for example, Communist China, they had a good go at trying to exterminate Christians. And Mao Zedong, well, I'm afraid he's not there anymore. And his brand of communism isn't there anymore. But it seems like Christians have filled the valley of China instead. Large, large numbers of them. Well, that's a local victory, but don't worry, that valley will be filled with a new valley and there'll be new opposition. That's why it's really important to keep two kings in front of us because the cry of this chapter that is trying to put into our hearts is, may your kingdom come. Finally, let it all be pushed back and out of the experience of God's people. That is what 2 Samuel is written to get us praying. Your kingdom come. We want the day when what happened in verse 25 happens in our experience as well. And evil is pushed back. That's the great longing. I know we sang it in our first song, didn't we? Uh, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. That is the longing that the Bible wants us to have pounding in our hearts. And 2 Samuel was written to create that longing in this area of opposition so that you might be one of those who accepts the king and lives for him instead. Let's uh, have a moment of quiet. Uh, happy just to stay quiet. You can talk to God, use your own words, say what you want. Uh, pray quietly to him. Give you time for that. And then I'll pray and take questions afterwards. But let me pray. Father in heaven, it, it saddens us to see your kingdom opposed so much. But we thank you for the greatness of your king, uh, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you will bring many people on our estate to see the greatness of that king and keep us longing for his future kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.